Brilliant. Really good to see you this morning. For those of you who are new here, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's really good to have you with us. Um, I just got back from Zimbabwe on Tuesday. Had a great trip. Thanks to those who asked. I'll find another opportunity, uh, maybe a little bit tonight and maybe next Sunday to feed back a bit more news than that, but it was a really good time, but great to be back home. It rained the whole time I was in Harare, so I <laughs> can you believe it. Came back here and it's sunny, so there you go. Uh, just one thing to remind you about this evening, 7 o'clock at our other venue, 502 Ashy Road. We have a worship night, 7 o'clock Ashy Road for a worship night. These are always great times to come together, enjoy God's presence, worship Him, delight in Him, pray to Him, hear Him speak to us. So I encourage you to get out this evening, let's come and enjoy God in that space where we can have a uh, less hurried time to soak in His presence, give Him praise and uh, feel His voice speaking to us. Well, it's really good to have Pete and Nikki Cornford with us this morning. Um, Pete and Nikki have been here many times. We were just talking about it before. Actually, Pete didn't preach last year uh, because we were both on sabbatical. It didn't quite happen, but um, Pete normally comes every year to speak. And Pete and Nikki have been great friends of Grace and mine for the last 30 years, pretty much. We've uh, worked together in ministry for a long time. Pete leads Redeemer, Redeemer Church in Ealing, which is a fantastic church. And I go up there regularly as well to to be with them and uh, help with their team. And uh, we partner together in terms of what we're doing with the Advanced Family of Churches. Pete helps me to give a lead to what we're doing in the UK with the group of churches we're working with. So Pete and I spend lots of time together, talking together, seeking God together. And uh, we're grateful that Pete and Nikki are with us this morning. So can we welcome Pete? Yeah, it's a real privilege to be here. Uh, we used to live two doors apart, wasn't it? Our first church that I ever worked for on staff, I was on staff at the church with Matt, so it's been great being part of them. And John, I was thinking it must have been 25 years ago, John used to lead the worship when I was involved in a youth thing at, New, at Stony Bible Week. And uh, John was up on stage, it is absolutely wonderful. Redeemer Church, it's their birthday today, 11 years we've been going today. So, uh, and we so appreciate Matt and his ministry. I know he comes up each year, he meets with our elders, gives them support and putting up with me. So we really are really, really grateful for what you do there. Uh, just a quick update. Uh, we meet in a university. Somebody was saying, I mean, this building's incredible. Uh, we've actually just made a bid to try and get a building in Ealing. Uh, it's an empty Church of England building. Uh, there are a couple of others bidding as well. So... But that's just what we're in the midst of at the moment. And so if you fancy praying at all, it'll be great if you could just pray. But yeah, yeah, if you've got a million pounds as well, that's a helpful deposit. <laughs> if you've got five million, that would help pay for it, but let's not go there. We believe in a big God, don't we? What, one other bit of news I've just got to tell you before we got started. I became a granddad last year. I was going to put a picture up, but I thought nobody would then listen to a word that I'm going to say. So uh, my granddaughter, Eliora, has actually moved in with us as well. My son has had to sell his flat in London, and so he's hoping to get somewhere else. You think, oh, if you're a grandparent, you think, I'd do anything for my kids. Oh, grandkids, it's even better, isn't it? What do you do for people that you love? I'd like us to feel challenged on that this morning. Like, I love Redeemer Church. I love my grandchild. What would I do for Jesus Christ? Jesus, as we come and we look at your word, we want our hearts to be full of love for you. 
And Lord, we, we know that it's so important that we gather together. But also, we know there's something about how do we live 24-7 when we walk out of this building. We do ask that we would live lives of love and devotion for you. We ask this for your glory. Amen. I'm going to be reading from Luke. I know that there's uh, church Bibles here. If you haven't got a Bible, I'm sure somebody will give you one. It's great to have a Bible and to read it. Luke 10, probably very well known if you've been to church. In fact, if you've never been to church, it's great having you with us. You may even have thought, oh, I've heard of this. It's called The Good Samaritan. I know they're handing out Bibles now. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this is a story that Jesus told. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, let's be honest, we all love a story, don't we? Stories, I know I've got an English teacher in the front row. You know, stories have conflict, they have tension, they have surprise, they have extraordinary characters, they have controversy, they have suspense. And this is probably one of the best-known stories in the world. So many people, if they're not Christians, don't go to church, they say, I've heard of the Good Samaritan. An expert comes to test Jesus. This guy would have been respected in society. He would have been wise and knowledgeable. Definitely would have had a master's, maybe a PhD as well. 
being full of intellect. But he wasn't just a theorist. He was an action man. He was a guy who wanted to do something. What have I got to do? He comes and approaches Jesus like that. Possibly a little puffed up. How do we approach Jesus? Jesus is so gracious, isn't he? He asks him a question. I guess if you ask questions, it often empowers people. That's what I love about the Alpha course. It's not we're going to tell you all the answers and you've got to necessarily believe this. You know, actually, we say, who do you think Jesus was? Why do you think he died? And people say, oh, I don't know. I've got to wrestle with the question. And Jesus does that with, with this wise man. In fact, he doesn't ask a question. There's two questions that come out. Fascinating. The answers to the questions are in the Bible. And I guess it's, it's beautiful. Look, it's not my church. But look, if you've just been given a Bible, take it home with you. Keep it. Because we should be those that read the Bible. Shouldn't we? We should be those that actually, if we're looking for answers in life, we've got to. I, I read something, millennials. Now, you know, we all get confused about that. That's if you're under the age of 47. I think it's 27, is it, to 42 or something? I was saying millennials. Only 9% of Christian millennials read their Bibles every day. Seriously, have the Bible. Read it. In an age where there are 1,839 different versions in 1,275 languages just on the YouVersion app, But we're not reading it. Jesus was saying, hey, come on. I'm going to ask you a question. If you want to know how to do life, you've got to be one that thinks, you know, I'm going to read the Bible. I know you've got a reading plan here. How are we are those that take the Bible? Says, How can I answer this? Why? Because he basically merges from Deuteronomy, the wise ruler, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He merges that with a bit from Leviticus. These are two books in the Old Testament. You shall not take vengeance or hear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God had spoken through the Bible. And basically saying, hey, I've got a question. You want the answer? Find the Bible and let's apply that here. J.C. Ryle, he was the bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s. He says in his commentary, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible should be the rule of our faith and practice. It's fascinating, isn't it? We have um, someone from our church who lives with us. It's an amazing story. She got saved under COVID, didn't have anywhere to live, so she's come to live with us, got baptized. And, and the, the wrestles that she has with, how about God? And, and we are soft and say, well, what's it say in the Bible? Because otherwise we say, well, my God wouldn't do that. And actually, God is revealed in the Bible. How do we read the Bible and discover something about this? So the guy's correct. But he then comes back for a little bit more. And this is where we get the story, doesn't he? He says, okay, who is my neighbor? Apparently... In those days, there was a saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
And so when he comes to ask Jesus, who is my neighbor, he's trying to work out, well, actually, who should I love and who am I allowed to hate? And then Jesus tells this story. A man, a man is journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is known as a tough and dangerous place. It's a 17-mile steep journey. I had a sabbatical, as Matt referred to last year. First one I've had, actually. I've been in ministry for 27 years. And one of the things I decided to do was walk around London. I thought if I walked clockwise around London, on my right would always be the city, and I could just keep praying for the right. It was 155 miles, and it took me eight days. I walked about 19 miles a day. I tell you, my feet were so badly blistered. Six weeks later, I'm still picking things off in the shower. <laughs> I know you don't want too much details about that. 17 miles, it was a tough old walk. I understand this guy. Not only that, it was a tough walk because there were caves and robbers. In the 5th century, it was still nicknamed the Bloody Way because you could expect to be attacked. They reckon in the 19th century, you still had to pay to ensure safe travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. We think the man was a Jew, but Jesus doesn't tell us. Because what he's trying to make clear is the need is important, not the nationality. And sometimes I think we can get too caught up on the nationality. And what Jesus is saying, look, there is a need here. Who will meet the need? Are we aware of those in need around us? Are we aware of those in need nationally or internationally? I also had the privilege on my sabbatical with my wife of going to Madagascar. There are advanced churches there, and I love the fact that we're part of advanced and we partner around the world. 95% of Madagascans live on less than $2 a day. Am I aware of that need? To me, it's just eye-opening. Jesus is challenging Hey, there is a need here. And so then we get the priest turn up. The priest was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron, the brother of Moses. Moses, you know, the mighty man who was used to break them out of captivity, bring the plagues, take them across the Red Sea. This guy has got a pedigree background. I grew up in a Christian family. I was, grew up in a Baptist church, Baptist church in Sussex. All my uncles and aunts were Christians, both my grandparents were. My granddad was part of the same church for 77 years. It's easy to look at pedigree or background. But actually, when you get this, you see the priest does nothing. And yet, if we stop and think about the story, he's walking away from Jerusalem, not towards it. So therefore, his avoidance of the man... It's got nothing to do with being made unclean because he's not going on duty. He's come off duty. It's inconvenient rather than illegal. It's almost like, oh, it could stop me. It could hold me up. I'm heading home. He decides to do nothing. How good are we at stopping? We think about these stories, don't we? And then my wife, she did this uh, course called Academy and really challenged, how do you remember the poor? 
And uh, she said, you know, but Pete, every time we go shopping, we will buy the big issue. And partly I think, God, how many copies of the big issue do I need? But it just makes me stop and say hello and to connect with somebody that you think, I could just walk past so quickly. Then Jesus goes on to the Levite. The Levite was the assistant to the priest, an important godly man. He also sees and crosses the road, rushes on and does nothing. I think those that work for the church, you know, good people. I'm, I want to believe good for the Levite. I'd like to believe that when he got home, he, he started a prayer meeting for the man on the road. I would like to believe that when he got back, he, he set up a charity for those that were in need. That's what I'd like to believe. I, I'd like to believe that maybe there was a fund to support the families of those that had been in trouble. But what Jesus clearly says is, yeah, but he didn't help the man in need. Jesus brings this challenge, doesn't he? Can we get too concerned about image or what others think of stopping? So there's been this sort of, hey, it was a priest, then it was a Levite. The third person turns up. It's easy. Everybody, the crowd could have almost said, Jesus, we know who this is going to be. It's either going to be a deacon or a layman. You know, we're, we're, we're working down the pecking order. And Jesus tells the story and he says, it was a Samaritan. This would have been such a shock. They would not give a drink of water to a Samaritan. If a woman was giving birth and, 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 and pregnant, you think, come on, this is a new life. No, don't help the birth of a Gentile. In the South Asia Bible commentary, they've nicknamed it the parable of the good enemy. See, we, we, we miss this when we read the Bible. The reality is that even if you don't go to church, and I say the word Samaritans, many of us will think, oh, Samaritans, that's a good cause, isn't it? The Samaritans was established by a vicar in 1953 in London following the funeral of a young girl. They respond to a call for help every 10 seconds, over 3 million calls a year. So when I say Samaritans, you'll think, oh, they're good. Samaritans' purse was founded in 1970 by Bob Pierce, and it works into over 100 countries bringing humanitarian aid. And we think of the Samaritans as good. Samaritan befrienders in Hong Kong, in Asia, a place of shame, was the first of its type to support those that had suicidal tendencies. We've always thought Samaritans are the good guys. If Jesus was here today, would he say it's an Irish Republican supporting someone who's on the orange order? Would he say it's a white colonialist and a black freedom fighter? Would he say this is a Ukraine pensioner with a Russian soldier? There would have been something that would have thought, what? No way. And, and, and this help, it wasn't the minimum. He did all that he could. It was no moral obligation. It was exaggerated action. It was a lot of money. Two months, they think, of board. Which was a good, good thing, because actually, if the guy didn't recover quickly, you could sell the guy as a slave to pay his board and lodging. So he suddenly says, there's two months' worth of money. Thabiti, he's a Washington pastor and part of the Gospel Coalition, 
It says, the neighbor in the parable was the one who served the urgent need of an anonymous stranger. A saved man must be a merciful man. See, if we understand something of this God that we sing about, there must become mercy in our heart that flows to others. It is costly. Mike McKinley in his For You commentary says this, the guy exhibits extravagant, costly, self-sacrificing, culture-crossing love. Wow, so we're not just saying about church in Redeemer, oh, it's 11 years old, let's just gather and have a great Sunday morning, which I absolutely love. You know, and I always think, oh, it's great, the musicians serve us. But what we're trying to say is we want to understand something of your great costly love for us. That means we should be merciful and showing love to others. It must flow through us. This was huge personal cost. Funny, when I was in Madagascar, obviously it's been translated. I was trying to act out the stories of any preach that I did, you know. And I sort of think, I know you guys are far too sophisticated for that. But, you know, part of me thought, yeah, should we just beat somebody up in the middle of the thing? Would you remember it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I was imagining even like this scene. It's a little bit like, you know, I've got Matt Hosey on my back and, and I'm struggling along. I get to the inn and, you know, and we sort of think, oh, that's nice. Just take him somewhere. You know, one commentator that I read said, it's a bit, imagine a scene in the Wild West. An Indian carries a cowboy to a fort with two arrows in his back, the cowboy's back, and looks after him for the night and says, oh, look after him. You'd have thought they'd have absolutely lynched the Indian, wouldn't they? There was some talk that Jericho would have been a Jewish settlement. And this Samaritan was going to ride in with a beaten-up Jew. I mean, this is just a shocking challenge. The expert asks, who is my neighbor? And if you think about it, Jesus doesn't answer the question, does he? What question does Jesus answer? He says, how can you be a neighbor? That's really what he's trying to say. The Nike advert, do it, 1988, I believe. Jesus saying, do it, was a year dot. He was saying, actually, come on, I want you to do it. I want you to live it. Paul John Isaac, he's from Namibia. He's an academic out there. He was asked, why is Christianity spread so rapidly in the, Victoria, in the Roman society? He said this, Jesus' message was directed to groups that other religious and political movements did not take seriously or openly rejected because they considered them racially, intellectually, sexually, or socially inferior. He was saying that the gospel was so powerful and it spread so rapidly because actually they would take it to anyone and to everyone. They weren't saying, look, I don't think they're worthy. I don't think they're worthy. I don't think they're good enough. And I guess there's that provocation in this whole thing of the Good Samaritan. Will we take the gospel to whoever? Will we willingly offer it to anyone and everyone this week, this month, this year? Matthew Henry, he was a Welsh theologian, said, It is the duty 
of every one of us to sustain, help, and relieve all who are in distress. So he was saying, come on, if we are followers of Jesus, it's almost like this is our duty. Fillmore, the English preacher, says, unless we love those around us, we have not grasped what it means for us to partner with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, I say, I think I, I want to be a partner with the Holy Spirit. I want him to fill my life. I want him to so overwhelm me that he guides me. Yeah, you know, I was even saying to someone about the bit, look, if you feel, do feel free to give me five million, that's absolutely fine. But I'm not trying to kick down a door. I'm actually saying, God, are you opening a door? I'd love to partner with God. I don't want to keep telling God what I think he should do. I want to listen to what he's telling me to do. I want to see where he's... But actually, Phil Moore is saying, how on earth could you say you're trying to partner with God if you are not loving those around us? I told you I was raised in a, um, a Baptist church. I had a, a, a bookmark. I must have been about eight. And it was a judge on it, you know, sat at his desk like this. You know, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And I remember reading that so often. We had a good way of motivating when I was in a Baptist church. So the reality is now we say, oh, that's legalism. Let's get rid of the bookmark. And I wonder if Jesus say, hey, would there be enough evidence in your life that you really love me? You don't have to ask me twice about my granddaughter. Look, I've got a picture on my phone, you know what I'm saying? We can hang around and we can talk. I can tell you little stories already. Because that's what love does. You know, I live in a terraced house in London. What do you do with the pram? Yeah, bring it right in the house. I know you've been through all the leaves and the mud. It doesn't matter. It's the chariot for Eliora and she's welcome. <laughs> because that's love. John Piper says this, a heart of compassion leads to hands-on, messy, sacrificial, time-consuming, stressful action. I tell you, I, I am so aware that God has been so compassionate to me. I think, oh God, may that compassion flow through me. May it flow to other people. Everyone is our neighbor. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, we don't just think, oh, it's this group or it's this group, or they're my kind of people. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says this, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. This is why we say read the Bible every day. Because when you receive God's love, it flows through you. This is not us trying to do a good work in our own thing. It's not you think, oh, golly, Matt, don't invite him for another year. It's not us saying, come on, I've really got to try and polish up my life. If I could just love one person a day, I'm okay. 
What Jesus is saying here is that if we draw on God, God is a God of love and compassion and mercy. And surely it must flow through us. Now that means we help one. For some, that means we would change the system. Martin Luther King, the American minister and activist, says this, on the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And that's why I've loved it that Christians have been involved in trade unions that try to stand up for workers that were exploited. Or Christians have been involved in, in setting organizations that, that want justice, that are trying to break people out of modern day slavery. This is surely what we believe. And as Christians, we want to make a difference for all. I know that we cannot help everyone everywhere. But surely we can help someone somewhere. We, um, as I say, we, we rent buildings at the moment. We rent a Sunday facility. We also rent a midweek space. We call it the hub. Outside our hub sits a beggar called Darren. I mean, I must chat to him four days a week. Some days I think I know more about Darren than I do my own wife. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I feel guilty. He had to have a finger amputated last year because of the cold, and he reckons he's got frostbite in another one this year. He drinks black coffee with three sugars in it, and he's got no teeth. And I probably say the same joke every day. I feel bad about your teeth, and he just smiles at me. Thanks, Pete. I find him outside one day, and he's bleeding. He's been beaten up at night because on the street is tough. We buy him a sleeping bag. We buy him a tent. I can't change everything for everyone, but surely I've got to do something for Darren. We invite him in, give him a hot meal. Venus is still on the street. There's no simple answer, but you think, I can't keep walking by. As a church, we do something called love healing for two weeks before Christmas. We just say to our whole church, look, actually, we're going to stop all our small groups and, and we want you to love on healing. What could you possibly do where you've received the love of God and you just go and give it away? Be creative. Take someone for coffee. We do get involved in the soup kitchen. We invited the homeless into our hub to have a hot meal. Go to the local prison. We did four services in the local prison. Did a Christmas party for foster families. Because we're just trying to think, what could we do? How could we do this? Do you know what would break my heart? Is if people in Italy don't know there is a church there because we just not let our light shine. And surely that is what we want. As I said, I grew up Baptist, so I know that the answer is always Jesus. And I'm not trying to turn this into something moral. If we look again at the story... Some of the early church fathers, I would say, was over-allegorized it. One early church father said, man, he represents Adam. Jerusalem represents paradise. Jericho, the earth, 
The robbers were hostile powers. The priests was the law. The Levi was the prophets. The wounds was disobedience. The inn was the church. The innkeeper were bishops. And the Samaritan returning is the second coming. I'm not quite sure if you're into all that kind of... uh, What I do believe is Jesus is clearly in this. And actually, if we look at Scripture, we know that we are not the hero he is. If we really understand the gospel, we understand that all of us are under the power of sin and lay dead in our sin. We were in a mess and we needed help. But no one else will rescue us apart from Jesus. He came to where we were. He left heaven to come to earth to discover us. He rescued us at his own expense and paid in advance by his blood. And one day he will come back. This surely is a costly demonstration of true love. And if, if we think, oh, we're just trying to, oh, Pete's just saying, oh, come on, be good Christians. No, actually, if we understand something of his love for us, it must compel us. I just wanted to end with this picture. Some of you would have seen the Good Samaritan. This was a story that happened in our country between Christmas and New Year. This is a guy called Chris Marriott who was out walking with his two children when he saw a woman unconscious on the road. He went to kneel and help her and somebody drove a car at the scene and killed him. Chris was a Christian. In fact, 25 years ago when John and I were doing, Chris was one of our team. Chris used to be at Stonely serving the youth because he was always one that wanted to go. I don't know if you've read on his story. He was the guy that helped set up the Sheffield Food Bank. He was the one that was involved in a community money advice centre. He was a guy giving first aid. The Guardian, when they wrote about this story, which everyone splashed out the Good Samaritan, said he was a man who loved people. That was his, his whole life. He was 46. I happen to know he'd become a dad two months before this happened. And yet his wife just says, look, this is who he was. And in some respect, I thought, I don't want to stand up here and tell my stories. I just want us to be inspired that here was someone who so loved Jesus, everyone said he was giving all the time. I feel a little bit like the sort of the Isaiah thing. As we have a picture of God, he says, what about you? Who will go? Will you be one and say, actually, whatever the little things are, I would willingly serve for him. Jesus, I, I pray that is true for us. Lord, we, we think of Chris because obviously it's a sort of tragic final service, really. But Lord, so many would say actually his life was just dotted with always doing something, helping someone. Didn't need to. But his faith just compelled him. Lord, I pray that would be true of us.
I pray that we, we won't be those that just think, okay, God, I, I'm going to ask a question. If you can answer that one, I'm going to ask another question. I'm, I'm trying to get you on a technicality. I'm trying to say what I can do. Lord, I pray instead that we'll be those that are so motivated by what you have done for us. That surely we'd love to. Love on our neighbour. Love on a work colleague. Love on a fellow parent at the school gate. Listen to someone who's just struggling with their mental health. Sit with the lonely. Lord, I'm sorry when I've crossed the road and walked away. I'm sorry when I just thought this is just a bit inconvenient. I pray that we will reflect your heart, a God of mercy and compassion that reaches out with this incredible news. Amen. Should we stand together? Thank you, Pete. Great to have you and Nikki with us. Um, and we're looking...